In terms of governance, the only comment I'd make is that our predominantly national forms of governance clearly cannot cope with the problems we now face. Global problems require global solutions. And um, to point the finger at ourselves, if uh, the human species is to survive in any recognisable form, wasteful consumption in the minority world and obscene levels of military spending must be drastically reduced. That's Professor Ian Lowe from Queensland's Griffith University. Professor Lowe was one of two guests on a webinar organised by the Australian Earth Laws Alliance. This is the latest episode of Climate Conversations and I'm your host, Robert McLean. Welcome. It's so wonderful to have you on board. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The recent webinar was entitled, How Much DNA Do You Share With an Octopus? The Science of Inconnected Life on Earth. With Professor Lowe as a guest on the webinar was Professor Brendan Mackey, who is also from the Griffith University. Professor Mackey is the director of the Griffith Climate Action Beacon. Griffith Climate Change Response Program, the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility at Griffith University. However, today we just listened to Professor Lowe. I've always enjoyed listening to Professor Lowe speak. His language intrigues me. His language entertains me. It makes me smile. Sometimes it even makes me laugh. And that's when he's talking about topics which shouldn't make you laugh. They are serious issues. Let's have a listen now to Ian Lowe. So I'm going to say something about science's process and the limits of our knowledge, what we know and what we don't know, uh, the evidence that uh, what we're doing is not working, and uh, talk about a, a framework for moving ahead and what that means in terms of governance. And the most fundamental point, I think, is to recognise, as Brendan said, that uh, science is not a body of knowledge, which is the picture you get from school science, but it's a process, a process of constantly refining our knowledge through observation and experiment, through developing theories that explain what we see, and then using those theories to further test them against the reality of the world. The only point on which I agree with what are called uh, climate skeptics, who are in fact usually climate deniers, is their comment that the science is not settled. It's an essentially trivial point because science is never settled. Science is always a work in progress. And what distinguishes science from organized superstition is that it's open to revision in the light of new evidence or better theories, and that our work before it's published is reviewed by our peers. And if it's of significance, other people will try to confirm it. And that's why we have the science that allows us to see after dark, that allows us to move around, to have potable water and nutritious food and so on. I chaired the advisory council that produced the first national report on the state of the environment 25 years ago. And in it, we said that we had some serious problems that uh, needed to be dealt with immediately in 1996 if we were to achieve our goal of living sustainably. And we said the problems weren't simple, they were the cumulative consequences of the growth and distribution of our population, our lifestyle choices, the technologies we use, 
and the demands they make on natural resources. Fundamentally, the report pointed out the limits of our knowledge. In the biodiversity chapter, it said more than a million species are thought to live in Australia. Less than 15% have been formally described. Lack of knowledge about the diversity of life and the effect of our activities pose the most significant impediment to its conservation. In that sense, while we know we're losing biodiversity, what we don't know is that we are losing other biodiversity that we do not know about. And to reinforce a point that Brendan made, to talk about environmental management in that sense is indefensible hubris. To draw the parallel, it would be like uh, somebody saying they could manage a football team when they've only met two or three of the players and they have no idea what the others do or how they might fit in with the players that they've recognised, but they just hope it'll all work out. And we are in that sense, um, pulling random bricks out of the, the wall of life without any understanding of what the consequences will be. The 2016 report uh, said that there are areas where the condition of the environment is poor and deteriorating and uh, identified human pressures as the key drivers of environmental change. And the most recent report, suppressed by the Morrison government, but now released by Tanya Plibersek, said overall the state and trend of our environment is poor and deteriorating because of increasing pressures. And all of those pressures are directly or indirectly uh, driven by the demands of us as a human population. The report also pointed out that these are not just aesthetic issues, our health, living standards, cultural and spiritual fulfilment, connection to country are all interconnected and are all negatively impacted by our deteriorating environment. So in that sense, it's not just a nice thing to look after our natural environment or our biodiversity. It's critically dependent to us having a fulfilling life. At the global level, there have now been six reports in the series on the global environmental outlook pointing out that the observed changes to Earth systems are unprecedented in human history and several critical thresholds are close to or have been exceeded with the consequence possibly abrupt or irreversible changes to our life support systems. The Stockholm Institute's work on planetary limits shows that we are beyond some of the safe limits and in other areas like land system change or climate change, we're in an area of uncertainty where we just don't know whether what we are doing is doing irreversible damage or not. The world scientists' second warning to humanity summarised what we know in nine graphs and pointed out that the one area where we've made significant progress is reducing the release of ozone depleting substances. Um, but freshwater per capita is declining, the fish catch is declining, number of ocean dead zones are increasing, we've lost 100 million hectares of forest in the last 25 years, vertebrate species abundance is rapidly declining, carbon dioxide emissions are accelerating as is temperature change and basically because every year there are more of us and there is more of our livestock. Especially troubling, they said, is the trajectory of potentially catastrophic climate change and the mass extinction event, many life forms could be annihilated or committed to extinction by the end of this century. That reinforced the Living Planet report, which surveyed 10,000 species, mammals, birds, amphibians, fish, and reptiles, and found populations down by more than 50% since 1970. And the Director General of WWF said, heads of state need to start thinking globally, 
business and consumers need to stop behaving as if we live in a limitless world. This summary in the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment pointed out that the, the loss of species in the 20th century, the recent past, is somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times the average over the Earth's history from the fossil record. And we know what's causing the loss of species, destruction of habitat, introduced species and chemical pollution, none of which are slowing down, but are now being compounded by climate change. And the gloomy picture is that the rate at which we are losing species this century will be somewhere between in 100 times that of the last century. So we are really facing a quite catastrophic situation uh, that demands action. And uh, when I talk about pulling random bricks out of the wall of life, what we do know is that when a species goes extinct, there are implications up and down the food chain. There are implications for the species on which it predated, implications for the species for which it was a food source. But because of our limited understanding of where those species are and how they interact, uh, we are basically like a small child pulling random components out of the back of a TV set without knowing when the whole system is going to stop working. In, in a sense, uh, we decided as a polity 30 years ago that we wouldn't behave in this unprincipled and irresponsible way when COAG meeting in Simulated Majesty in Canberra adopted a national strategy for ecologically sustainable development and committed all our governments in principle to a path of economic progress that doesn't impair the welfare of future generations, that strives for equity within and between generations, recognises the global dimension of what we're doing, protects our biological diversity and maintains ecological processes and systems. I leave you to ponder on the extent to which recent governments at any level show any sign even of knowing there is a national strategy for sustainability, let alone seeing that as a way in which we should act. The fundamental drivers of our destruction of natural systems is our increasing population, increasing consumption per person, and the societal values that see that as desirable rather than a problem. The framework we need to have if we're going to live within the limits of natural systems is one that doesn't see the economy as the be all and end all, that recognizes that it's a subset of human society, only a subset, and a society is totally enclosed within and totally dependent upon natural ecological systems. We are as dependent on natural systems, both for our sustenance and the processing of our waste, as gum trees or galahs or goannas or garfish. Um, and uh, that's a fundamental point that we need to, to recognize. In terms of governance, the only comment I'd make is that our predominantly national forms of governance clearly cannot cope with the problems we now face. Global problems require global solutions. And um, to point the finger at ourselves, if uh, the human species is to survive in any recognizable form, wasteful consumption in the minority world and obscene levels of military spending must be drastically reduced. I think the fundamental problem is that uh, there's no sign of recognizing at a government level, the scale of change needed to have a sustainable future. So to conclude, uh, it's implicit in what I've been saying that our decisions are shaping the future. And I believe we should be trying to produce a sustainable future. 
we're certainly not currently heading in that direction. We are doing irreparable damage to the natural systems on which we depend. And the development of the idea of sustainability science is that our, both our gathering of knowledge and our application of it should be predicated on that fundamental responsibility of living within the observable limits of natural systems and recognizing the extent to which we need to change. That's fundamentally our responsibility to the other species that we share this planet with and to the future generations for whom we hold it in trust. Because there is no planet B, this earth is the only home we have, the only home we will ever have. There's no realistic prospect of mass migration to another part of the cosmos or rescue by friendly aliens. We are deciding whether we will live within the limits of natural systems or as it was summarized by my little granddaughter at one of these school children's climate uh, change demonstrations, we need to care for our world. Thank you very much. Professor Lowe's grasp and understanding of such a broad sweep of knowledge just astounds me. As does his language, I'm just fascinated by the images he conjures up with his metaphors. Listen to this one as he talks about colonialism. Because Europe, uh, as they toured the world, um, putting a flag into anything that didn't move and a gun barrel into anything that did, um, they didn't just go there and uh, expropriate the resources. They imported to those countries the European way of thinking based on the Abrahamic religions that saw us as the summit of creation in the centre of the universe and all living creatures at our disposal. We've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It was great to have you along. Until we talk again, please take care, stay safe and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out the show notes as you'll find links in there for the Australian Earth Laws Alliance and Griffith University. Again, please take care.